Sometimes, the best stories in golf aren't found on tour. You'll find them at the back of the range. And here's your host, Ben Adelberg. And welcome to the Back of the Range Golf Podcast. I am your host, Ben Adelberg. This is episode 115. Well, the week has really flown by here at the Back of the Range. It has certainly been a productive one. I recorded two incredible episodes for later this month with two guests that probably could not be any more different. And I also spent some time catching up with some previous guests of the podcast that have become good friends. So I know that this episode is dropping a little bit late this week, but I'm not going to leave you hanging. New episode each and every week. That's what we do around here. 2020 is going to be a big year. I'll be traveling to some of the best amateur events in the country. I'll be playing some golf at some of the best courses in the world. And I want to make sure that you listeners are included every step of the way. I know that leaving reviews in Apple Podcasts takes some time. They're greatly appreciated. I know that leaving a comment takes a little bit of time. But your input will shape the future of this podcast. So if you know of a person that would be a great guest, let me know. Shoot me an email, ben at the back of the range.com. That's how these things happen around here. Please make sure you're subscribed in Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow along on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And remember that every episode is available on the website, thebackoftherange.com. Let's get started. Our guest this week is Ryan Vermeer. He's a former two-time All-American at the University of Kansas. He holds the record for the most career wins as a Jayhawk, even more than Gary Woodland. He did play professionally on tour for several years. He reached the Corn Ferry Tour, but made the transition back to being a teaching professional in his home state of Nebraska. That transition led him to incredible success in the Nebraska PGA section. In fact, he's the first Nebraska PGA member to win the PGA Professional National Championship. He did that in 2018. He's played in numerous PGA championships and represented the PGA of America and his country in the PGA Cup. Lots of great stories, an incredible journey. Let's get started. Ryan, welcome to the back of the range. How are you? I'm doing good. Thanks for having me. You know, the name of this podcast, Back of the Range, you've spent a lot of time on the range, whether it's working on your game or helping out uh, your, your students and your members at Happy Hollow in Omaha, Nebraska. So I guess let's start at the beginning. What's your mm -hmm. earliest memory of spending time on a driving range? Um, I've seen pictures of myself hitting balls, you know, all the way back to the age of two. Um, obviously, I don't recall doing that, but I sure. do remember. Uh, probably by the time I was four or five, uh, my dad was the uh, golf professional at Spencer Golf and Country Club in Spencer, Iowa. And I mean, I definitely remember, you know, driving carts around that place when I was way too little to do it. I remember going to the range and spending time on the putting green, um, you know, still one of my highlight shots that I probably, I don't know that I'll ever forget doing it, but there was a scoreboard that my dad had built right out in front of the putting green. You know, and I've been back there plenty of times since, and it's obviously a fairly big scoreboard, but when you're four or five years old, it looks massive. Of course. Um, and I remember sitting on the <clears throat> grass just by the cart path and, you know, trying to hit a golf ball over the scoreboard onto the putting green and being able to accomplish it. Um, you know, that was, that was a big deal for a four or five year old. And, you know, it's, uh, just one of those things that I remember doing. It's, uh, you know, it was right out in front of the pro shop. So people that were in there could see me doing it. So it was kind of a show off thing. Sure. 
you know, but yeah, it was, it was fun, but I definitely remember, you know, all the way back to, you know, to then I started competing in uh, junior golf tournaments when I was five years old, lots of, uh, lots of time on the range for sure. Well, we, uh, we have lots to cover and I guess, uh, my first question is, you know, well, basically piggybacking off what you just said, did mm-hmm. you ever see your golf career ending or, or, you know, at the part it is right now i mean i believe you got a birthday coming up in a couple days i think we're right around the same age 42 43 as a kid that's hitting flop shots um you know at the age of four outside of his dad's shop to basically having your own shop and being the uh, you know pga professional of the year Uh, do you have to just sit back and think like how did i get here from a pretty early age you know, the golf bug, you know, hit me. I have, I had access, you know, that was different than most because of what my dad did. Um, you know, I had access to equipment, I had access to a place to go and practice. So, you know, it it was easy for me to fall in love with golf, but you know, that doesn't necessarily ensure that you would do it. And for me, for whatever reason, I just did, I, I loved golf. I loved everything about it. I'm a competitive person. So it gave me an outlet for, you know, for doing that. So I would say, you know, really, as long as I can remember, you know, my goals were to get to somewhere similar to where I am now. Obviously, I wanted to be a PGA Tour player and I wanted to, you know, win the PGA Tour player of the year, not necessarily the PGA of America player of the year. But, you know, everybody has different roads to, you know, to where they get in different plateaus and ceilings and, and whatever else. But, you know, for where I'm at right now, to become the PGA of America player of the year, I mean, that's that's as high of, as an award as, you know, I can get because, you know, whether I'm playing on the tour or whether I'm a section member here in Nebraska, you know, as a PGA of America member, playing the game is still really, really important to me. Um, yeah. So my goal is to win a player of the year award, which is something that you have to go out and earn as opposed to an arbitrary award that, you know, somebody votes on and says, Oh yeah, you did a good job this year. And, you know, so I, you know, for me to win that award, go out and compete in tournaments that mean something that's it. That's a huge deal. But yeah, I mean, as long as I can remember my goals were to, you know, take playing the game of golf as far as I could take it. Well, I am uh, I, I am going to try and slow myself down to before we get to talking about Kansas because we definitely, as as yep. most listeners know of this podcast, I have uh, a lot of ties to the Lawrence, Kansas area. So anytime I get to talk to a Jayhawk, I have to, you know, I gotta you know practice my breathing and slow down. And don't race to that part of the interview. I gotta you know take it one shot at a time, so to speak. Um, so let's let's do a little bit of of uh, let me let me ask you a little bit about your junior career. So you're spending time around. You're always around a golf course. You're always around. Um, you know, I'm sure your dad's run ran tournaments. I'm sure you're always around it. So, what was your junior golf experience like? Were you playing every tournament you could play in? Were you playing other sports? Um, what was your upbringing? And then maybe we can talk a little bit later about maybe what some of the juniors at your club are doing and how you kind of share lessons with that. I played other sports. I was never very, I was really small growing up. So, you know, outside of maybe just shooting a basketball around, I had no business being on a basketball court. Sure. If I would have tried to play football, which some of my buddies did, um, I would have got broken in half. Uh, so that really wasn't working very well for me either. Um, but I did play a lot of baseball growing up. Okay. Uh, I got, uh, 
to a point when I was probably in middle school where, you know, playing on the rec league wasn't really doing it for me anymore. I felt like I was better, you know, I, I was a better player than to just be playing on a rec league. So I, you know, went down the road of trying out for the select stuff and made it all the way to the end of that process. And, you know, the coach then popped the question to me as to how much golf I was going to play. And I gave him the answer that he didn't want to hear and told him that I was I was going to play in quite a, quite a few golf tournaments. So he made my decision to become a one sport athlete for me because he was, you know, obviously he did, he wanted somebody on his team that was going to devote all the time to playing the baseball games. Yeah, and yeah. I wasn't going to be that guy. So, you know, that, that made it pretty easy and, and I was fine with that, but you know, until the age, until middle school, you know, I definitely was not just a one sport athlete, but by the time I got to middle school, golf was my thing. Um, and as far as tournaments were concerned, I, you know, I played all kinds of stuff. I played all the little things, you know, that you could play in around, you know, around Iowa and Nebraska. I started playing in, you know, an event called the Pepsi Little Peoples in Quincy, Illinois, which I'm fairly certain still goes on today. Um, and then they had another tournament over there as well later in the summer that was called the Junior Masters. Um, you know, that was kind of my big tournament of the year where I'd, you know, go travel somewhere. Then, of course, you know, by the time I hit, you know, kind of that middle school age, you know, you're starting to think a little bit bigger and, you know, getting a little bit more exposure so that you can, you know, get colleges to look at you. And so I started looking at the uh, American Junior Golf Association. That association has grown, you know, leaps and bounds since, you know, the time that I was playing in it. There's events all over the place now. I don't think the access to it is as difficult as it was when I was growing up and playing through it. But I mean, when I was doing it, I mean, you legit had to fill out an application to get into the event. Okay. And, you know, there was there was one event in Des Moines, Iowa that was at Wakanda. And, I mean, honestly, that was the only event that was within 10 hours. You know, I think maybe there was something out in Denver or something like that. But, I mean, this was – everything was on the East Coast and the West Coast and Arizona and stuff like that. There wasn't anything that was remotely close to, you know, where I lived in Omaha, Nebraska. So I keep sending in these resumes and I keep getting back that you're not accepted to play. And finally, my dad calls them and, you know, gets somebody on the phone. And he's like, well, I don't understand like exactly what criteria you need here. You know, my son, you know, plays good golf, does well in all these tournaments, um, you know, and they come back with the response of, well, usually we, you know, we try to get these players accepted on a regional basis so they can play in the events that are closest to their house. And my dad's like, well, have you ever looked at a map? (laughs) (laughs) We're trying to get him into an event that's two and a half hours away from our house. And the next best thing is like 10 more hours away. So exactly which one are we supposed to be trying to get into here? So, I mean, that was a little bit of a frustrating thing, you know, first, but once I finally cracked into that deal, you know, and played well enough. And then I think I've finished pretty high in like a, a PGA of America junior national event at 1.2, you know, so then you start kind of getting recognized and then, you know, and so I was able to enjoy, you know, a lot of those AJGA events where, you know, before you go play college golf, but that's kind of the pinnacle of, you know, what you can play in. So I, I did all that stuff and, you know, my mom was my taxi driver and got me where I needed to go. And, you know, it was, it was a lot of fun. It's interesting. You know, you're talking about this and I, you know, I know you played at, played at Kansas starting in 97. So I'm guessing this is like early and mid nineties when you're going through this, 
you're playing your junior golf and obviously, you know, there's no YouTube hype video you can make and send to anyone and there's no, uh, you know, internet, uh, you know, junior golf database that you can register with. So, I mean, and also, so here's a question for you. What kind of pressure did you feel to perform in these tournaments that you actually were able to get into? I mean, do you remember like some of the big sticks that you were going against or like, you know, what was that like? Cause I'm just thinking about it. Like, look, you know, normally it's you, you know, you get in or you don't, but it's not like, you know, like you had to lobby and, and rightly so you had to lobby for like your, your dad and your, your, you're like, Hey, I, I'm out here. Like I, this is all I can get into. This is the closest thing to me. Right. Do you remember what that was like playing in that tournament? Uh, yeah. I mean, it was, you know, the first few times you definitely felt the pressure to, to succeed so that when you go to sign up for the next one, you could, you know, put on the results for the, you know, the one that you played in and not have it be one of your worst results. Um, or, and at least you wanted to be able to put it on there and not be embarrassed to do it. Right. Um, so yeah, it was, you know, there was certainly pressure there, but yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm trying to think and I do, I, I, I'm fairly certain I, it was the, uh, PGA of America junior national championship where, you know, it's a deal where you qualify through a local qualifier and then everybody goes to a national tournament. I'm pretty that, sure that, that it was the max fly, the max fly, max fly. PGA. Yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. So I qualified for that through from Nebraska went down and played at PGA national in Palm beach. Yep. Um, and I played, I played fantastic. I think I finished 10th, um, you know, and you're playing against, you know, all kinds of guys. I mean, Joel Cryable, DA Plum. I mean, there's all kinds of Steve Scott, you know, all this, everybody who has, you know, done things, you know, either back then or have continued to do things now, you yeah. know, is playing an event. And, you know, that was kind of my, that was kind of my big breakthrough event. It, it was not an AJJ event, but I finished so high in that tournament that, you know, basically it got me to be exempt into all these other tournaments. Um, so that was, that was a huge deal for me to, you know, to perform well at that tournament. And, you know, then, you know, I, I don't know that you're trying to tell people that they need to realize that, you know, Hey, we're out here in Nebraska and we know how to play golf too. But, you know, at the time when you're young, it, that's kind of the feeling that you get that it's like, well, they don't even realize that, you know, we're not just a bunch of cornfields. <laughs> so, but yeah, it was, you know, that was one of the frustrating things that I had to go through, but you know, it, it wasn't, you know, something that went on for a long, long time. And it, you know, as the old adage goes, if you just play well, things will take care of themselves. I mean, that was, I've had so many people tell me that over the years and, and it's true. I mean, sometimes you feel like the door is closed on you, but you know, if you get that one opportunity and you, happen to perform well you know that door seems to you know swing open pretty wide so yeah. you know good good play kind of lends to you know good things happening of course so you have this uh you have success in the junior junior side and um you know obviously the older you get you're getting closer to uh you know going to college and i'm sure that uh playing collegiately was was something that was a goal of yours so you know, you, as I said, played for uh, for head coach Ross Randall at the University of Kansas from 97 to 2000, two-time All-American your junior and senior year, you know, you know, won seven events. I believe that's still a record. Talk to me a little bit about the recruiting process back then. When did Kansas come on your radar? Were there other choices? It was interesting. I mean, and again, I mean, I think part of it is 
I wasn't one to, you know, to toot my own horn. I can't remember. I don't remember ever sending one single thing to any coach. Really? I, I didn't send a single thing to anyone. I just kind of let it play out. And I mean, in Nebraska, we have a tournament with Kansas every year called the Kansas Nebraska cup matches. So um, the top juniors from Nebraska go down and play the top juniors from Kansas, or they come here and play. It alternates every other year. And I was able to do that. Um, so I played in that, I think more than, I think myself and maybe one kid from Kansas have both done it, but I think I played in it when I was 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, and 18. So I played in it six times, which I don't think anybody else has ever played in it that many times, but through that, I was able to meet a lot of the kids, you know, from Kansas and then obviously everybody from Nebraska. So regionally, you know, Kansas was always, you know, on my radar, um, you know, I mean, if you follow, you know, other sports, I mean, the hype around Kansas basketball is intriguing for anybody. Sure. Um, Kansas was only three hours away from home. So it was, you know, close enough that I felt like I could kind of come home if I wanted to, which I never really did, but at least it entered your mind if an 18 year old might. Um, but it, you know, it was also far enough away that I felt like I was going somewhere. Um, I wasn't going to go to school with all of my buddies from high school and just kind of relive, you know, the four years of high school, right. you know? So those are some of the factors that kind of went into it. Um, I remember getting lots of, I got lots of communication from university of Minnesota, um, which they had a really nice golf team, you know, back in those days. Uh, it was an honor to get that stuff, but the thought of going, five hours north into the snow <laughs> I, I have to put I mean, a sweater on just to listen to you talk about this yeah i mean that that just really didn't you know I, I was already in a cold climate in nebraska and going north just didn't seem to make any sense to me whatsoever so i, I kind of never really did a whole lot with that um and then to be honest with you i think you know nebraska kind of just knew that i wasn't interested in going there they knew that i had some friends that were already at Kansas and they were kind of behind the eight ball anyway. So surprisingly the, you know, Nebraska, he, he did call me and tell me that if I wanted to go there. I had a scholarship, but you know, they, they really didn't do much. I mean, he probably spent 10 minutes of his life trying to recruit me. Okay. <laughs> I, I think he hard did, sell, I, hard sell. Yeah, right. I mean, I just think that it was, I think that he just kind of knew that I wasn't all that interested in going to Nebraska. Um, you know, the one, program that certainly would have swayed things at least in my mind would have been Oklahoma State and I did have you know f quite a few different meetings necessary not necessarily like meetings of hey like you know come come to Stillwater and you know see me and you know stuff like that but I saw coach Holder at golf tournaments all the time and right. I talked to him all the time so I mean there was always a little bit of communication with Oklahoma State um, it never was serious enough to where, you know, I was offered a scholarship or anything like that. Um, but again, some of that, you know, could be my own doing. I, I did, like I said, I, I wasn't tooting my own horn. I didn't send anything out to anybody. I just was kind of waiting to see, you know, what would come my way. And I knew pretty early on that Kansas was interested in me and that they were going to offer me, um, so I made my decision pretty fast. I mean, there was a lot about Kansas that I liked. Um, and the simple fact that <clears throat> I was going to a place that I wasn't going to have to redshirt, I was going to be able to play, you know, right away was huge for me. Um, 
you know, I mean, that was something that I talked to my dad about. I'm like, have I've played competitive golf forever. I can't imagine going to school and sitting on the sidelines for a year and not competing while I just go to school and practice. I'm like, that just doesn't sound like something that I would be able to do. I don't think I could handle that. Well, and, Um, and, and not to cut you off, but I think that's a great, you know, what you're saying right there is actually a great thing for parents that listen to this podcast, juniors, college players, how important it was for you to go someplace where you could play. Maybe you're not guaranteed a spot in the roster, but at least you know going in, hey, my I'm just jumping right in and I'm going to compete to play. So go someplace where you can play. Yeah, I mean, so for I mean, for four years, I played in every single tournament that yeah. the University of Kansas played in, with the exception of one. And the only reason that was is because Coach Randall over over scheduled us one semester. We we ended up getting into a tournament that we weren't maybe expected to get into. Okay. So, we had an extra tournament. So every single one of the guys that played like on a regular basis had to pick one event to not play. Right. Otherwise we were over the NCAA allotment of days competitive or so, you know, whatever the, whatever the rule, it was sure. a rule. So, so yeah, I mean, that was, <clears throat> that, that, that weighed pretty big on, on what I was going to do. I mean, I just, I just didn't want to go and, you know, have to miss out on being able to, to, to compete. And the other part was, is, you know, I knew that Kansas had a good golf team and then that we were going to be competitive. And my freshman year, we were, we were pretty young and we weren't necessarily great, but we had, you know, promising showings, you know, when, you know, at times, by the time I was a junior, I mean, we won the big 12 championship. Yeah. So we definitely, we definitely made it to, uh, you know, to where we were a, a prominent team in the country for sure. Well, um, you know, we've kind of tip, we've kind of mentioned coach Ross Randall. He was the head coach at the university of Kansas for gosh, probably 25, 30 years, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. you know, fortunately he passed away, but I got to know him and I, I'm going to ask you the question of when you first met coach Randall, but as I sometimes like to do, I like to tell a story that embarrasses me on my own podcast and entertains the <laughs> guests and all the listeners. So this is as good a time to tell this story as any. So um, I spent two years at the University of Kansas. I played one year of high school golf and then, then you know, spent a year uh, going to FAU and then and transferred up to Kansas. You know, my dream school, have family up there. I basically spent every summer of my childhood out uh, right in Lawrence, Kansas. So I got it in my 18 or 19 year old brain of how good of an idea or how cool it would be to uh, try and walk on to the Kansas golf team in like 96, I think it was 90, something like that. And I found out who the head golf coach was. And it was this guy named Ross Randall. And, you know, obviously the, the home course is at Alvamar. So I go and find Coach Randall and in the parking lot, just introduce myself to him. And of course, I don't look like a golfer because, you know, I'm a freshman at a big school and I <coughs> discover uh, pizza and keg parties. So I don't look like anything close to what an athlete should look like. And here I am going up to Coach Randall and saying, please, sir, explain to me the intricacies of your walk-on policy. I'm sure that went pretty well. And well, you know, he, from what I remember, um, he, he was very nice and saying, well, you know, Ben, um, 
you know, we kind of have a pretty good team, and, uh, uh, you know, we've been pretty competitive in the Big 8 Conference, which it was at that time. And, yep. uh, you know, we got, I, and I think you mentioned it, we got, we got kind of a good good roster right now. We kind of have some incoming freshmen coming in that are pretty strong, and I, I, I'm pretty sure he was referring to you. And he said, why don't you, you know, enjoy Kansas and enjoy your time here, and, and good luck, and, uh, yeah, um, go Jayhawks. <laughs> And that was his way of saying, are you kidding me? Do you have any idea what you're saying right now? So that was my experience with the team and my first meeting with Coach Randall. And obviously, I, I got to know him 20 years later down here in South Florida, and uh, which was, was fantastic. But that's my embarrassing first uh, introduction to Coach Randall at Kansas. What was your uh, – obviously, you're at the other end of the spectrum. He's probably giving you a little more time of day than he's giving me. Yeah, um... So I had one of my good friends, Kit Grove, um, who actually was became, Ross's assistant. Yeah, who was coach. assistant, and he actually followed Coach uh, Randall as the head coach at Kansas for a couple of years. Um, he was a good friend of mine growing up, and uh, he had transferred from New Mexico State to Kansas. Um, you know, and he was he was definitely one of my you know, kind of lead ins to, you know, to getting noticed by coach Randall, um, a little bit more than I've maybe already had been. Uh, so he had given me the heads up that, you know, basically, Hey, as soon as the clock strikes, you know, midnight, July 3rd or whatever the date is, you know, when you can have that eligible phone call, you know, you're going to be getting a call from coach Randall. So I mean, I, I kind of knew it was coming, but it was definitely over the phone was the first time I ever got to talk to him. Um, you know, he had just, he mentioned that he had been following what I've been doing, was uh, very interested in, you know, knowing more about my plans and what I was, what I was wanting to do. And if Kansas was ever going to be something that, uh, you know, would, would interest me. And obviously it didn't take me very long to kind of let him know that uh, I, was, I had already been leaning, you know, kind of that way. Uh, so we had a good, you know, we obviously had a good talk the first time. And, you know, I would say, I mean, it, it probably wasn't really within, you know, three to four more months. And I had gone down and, you know, taken any Kansas basketball game. And that was pretty much and, it, wasn't it? Toured, yeah. And toured the campus and all that stuff. I mean, you go to Lawrence, Kansas, as you know, um, it's a really cool town just in general. You throw in the fact that, you know, the, the campus is, you know, just beautiful. It's all right there, you know? So when you go to the school, like you, you recognize that you're on a campus. I mean, I've been to some other schools where things are kind of spread out and sprawled around. But like when you go to the campus at Kansas, like, you know, you're on campus and everything that's there is a college building or a sorority or fraternity house or whatever it may be. But like, so that to me was really, really neat. Uh, you know, the beauty of it, the setting of everything. And then, yeah, of course you go to, you know, a basketball game at Allen Fieldhouse and not forget who was playing at the time, Ray French, Paul Pierce, John. Oh, yeah. I mean, you're looking at, you know, what potentially, you know, one of the best college basketball teams that's ever been assembled and you go watch a game inside Allen Fieldhouse and you're like, yeah, I kind of like this. And <laughs> so, I mean, it really didn't take very long for, you know, all of those pieces to kind of come together and, you know, just for me to decide like, Hey, I don't, I don't really even need to deal with, you know, this recruiting thing anymore. I was pretty much ready to, uh, you know, sign on the dotted line. So I made my decision really early. Obviously I, I don't regret it. I mean, I, I spent, you know, all four years, you know, going to school, went kind of became a nomad for a year right after college, you know, playing professional golf. And then 
actually moved back to Lawrence and lived there for 10 more years, you know, a year later. So it was uh, definitely a place that I spent a lot of time. And when you started and, you know, you have, you have coach Randall now, uh, you know, there's a lot of different dynamics right now in college golf where, you know, mm-hmm. a, a hotshot, you know, uh, college player has his own swing coach and the college coach doesn't mess with the swing he's yep. more of a uh you know different tons of different responsibilities they could be the swing coach they could not be the coach they could be the one that is maybe helping with uh course management but not um you know other things you know it, there's a lot of different hats probably that the college coach uh wears today as maybe opposed to back then i'm just curious how involved was coach randall with your maturation as a player, did he become your swing coach? Did he like, what was that relationship like? And you know, how did he help you with your game? Well, he never really became my swing coach, but he, he certainly was somebody that I could bounce stuff off. Like, Hey, if I, if I'm not doing well, I mean, what do you, what are you seeing type of thing? Um, let's not forget coach Randall played on tour. Yeah. I mean, he was a tour player. Um, you know, when he grew up in Northern California, he grew up, you know, alongside the likes of Johnny Miller and, you know, I think in Venturi, you know, I mean, there was some, there was some hot shots. He played, you know, college golf at, uh, San Jose state with Claude Harmon. I believe it was Claude Harmon. Can't one of one of the Harmon brothers. Um, you know, so he, you know, his pedigree as a player was, you know, off the charts. I mean, he was, I mean, finished second in the national championship to Hale Irwin. I'm fairly certain as his team was winning the national championship. So, you know, as somebody who has been around professional golfers, my entire life, um, being able to have somebody with a playing pedigree as good as his was, was really big because I, I, I would trust what he would say. I mean, there's some guys that, you know, they can talk the talk, but can they walk the walk? And, you know, being somebody who's a good competitive player, I mean, I want you to be able to do both. And then yeah. that's going to help trust what you're telling me. I mean, it doesn't necessarily mean the other guys aren't right, but when you look at a guy that's got that kind of a playing background, it just makes it that much easier, you know, to kind of listen to what they're telling you. Um, but I will say <clears throat> where he didn't necessarily become my swing coach he helped me a lot with stuff around the greens. Um, Ross was an absolute magician with chipping and putting. And frankly, if he couldn't do that, he wouldn't have been in the, the player that he was because he wasn't a very long hitter. You know, he never, you know, was going to wow you with the way he hit the ball, but he could get it up and down from anywhere. And I mean, I mean, I would, I played numerous rounds of golf with him where in nine holes, he would have 10 putts. I mean, it's just, it was like the craziest thing you've ever seen. And it wasn't necessarily that he was knocking it in from 30 feet. He would chip it to literally inside five feet every single time. And, you know, I'll, I tell this story to people all the time. He was probably the best bunker player that I've ever seen in person. And during junior camps, he would do a, you know, a, a clinic on the bunker shots and, he would always tell people that there's four levels to being a bunker player. And the first level is let's just get the ball out of the sand, right. let's get it out of the sand and onto the grass somewhere. So he would kind of duff one out and just get it up out of the sand trap. And then he was like, okay, so once we become good enough to do that, now our expectation needs to be, we're a level two player where we're out of the sand onto the green, anywhere on the green, just so that the next shot you hit is with your putter. He would knock it out just up onto the green. 
Okay, now once you're to here, now you can raise your level of expectation to the point where you can get it out on the green and somewhat close to the hole to where you might be able to make the putt. So then he'd hit a pretty good one up there, you know, four or five feet away from the hole. And then he'd kind of laugh at you and he'd say, now level four bunker player is when you can start looking at a sand shot like you're going to make it. <laughs> and lo and behold, he would freaking make it almost every time. I mean, it was the craziest thing I've ever seen, but, you know, so he, he had a, lots of insight, you know, for short game shots and stuff around the green that, you know, I definitely listened to. Um, and, you know, not that I did everything exactly the way he did, because a lot of guys that, you know, get that good kind of have their own way of doing things and it may not necessarily work for everybody. But when you watch a guy do it and he succeeds with doing it, you're certainly going to try what he tells you. Um, yeah. you know, I was able to adapt, you know, a lot of the stuff that he was talking about, you know, into my short game, uh, you know, and it, and it certainly helped me, uh, you know, but he, so he was big time in that area. And then, you know, certainly, you know, course management teaching you, you know, how to play, how to deal with your emotions and stuff like that. And, you know, I mean, again, he's, he's an authority figure. So when you're 18, 19, 20 years old, <clears throat> how you take some of that information, you know, you, you, you know, sometimes you're like, God, I don't want to hear any of what he's telling right, me. Right. Right. This old guy you doesn't know, know what he's talking about. Yeah. You know, three hours, six hours, you know, three days, you know, whatever time may go by and you start thinking about it and you're like, man, I didn't like the way he was telling it to me then, but God, it makes a lot of sense. You know? So, I mean, there's, there was probably a lot of that stuff that, that went on. So you know, where it was lessons that I kind of figured out, you know, on down the road a little bit. Yeah. Okay. So let me jump in there. Cause I, I don't want to skip over this, but you know, I I've seen uh, mm -hmm. coach Randall give a lesson down here to, you know, a, you know, 20 handicapper. And I would see him get kind of um, not frustrated, but like, he's like, I've been doing this for years and years and like, here's what you need to do and, and, and kind of point some in the right direction. Mm -hmm. Um, now, what about being a college athlete under Coach Randall? Like, what were some of his things that he was adamant about that maybe, like you said, it took you a while to get or something that you knew was going to drive him nuts that was like one of his core principles, whether it's like, you know, don't short side yourself or, you know, club selection off the tee on a short par four. Maybe what were – what were some, give me, if you can, just give me like maybe one example of one of those hard lessons that you eventually adapted, but was hard to adapt right away. It was a lot of it was, you know, lines off the tee and lines into the greens because okay. he was adamant about like the short siding stuff. You know, you, you, you know, you do everything in your power to not short side yourself, but you give yourself the most amount of room on your next shot. And the same thing off the tee, he was adamant about, you know, some of the lines that you should take off the tees and not necessarily the club that you should hit, but the lines that you should take just so that you, you know, open up the fairways and give yourself the best chance, you know, on your approach shots. Um, and the thing that, the thing that probably got to us the most, and when he wasn't around, when we would joke about it the most was he wouldn't say it in a way that was you know, on the positive side, he wouldn't say like, Hey, you know, don't you guys think on this hole, we should be trying to hit up the right side so that we open up the green to the left side. He, he would literally, he was none of that whatsoever, which, you know, 
psychologist would tell you that's the way you should talk about it because then it puts the emphasis on where you're trying to hit it. He would say, you absolutely cannot hit the ball left. (laughs) (laughs) So it was totally the opposite of what any psychologist would tell you is, you know, you absolutely hit the ball left here and, you know, see, you kind of would have to brush it off because you're like, man, I, like that's not the visual that I right, want. Right, right. That's funny. Everything you see is, you know, oh, there's out of bounds over there. Okay, yeah, no kidding. You don't want to hit over there. But that's all you're thinking about. That's all you're thinking about. So what happens is you tend to hit it over there. So in practice, you know, you kind of go through those battles. You need to have to figure out how to, you know, have it go in on one ear and out the other. Well, I remember we were playing, and I'm fairly certain that I won the tournament. Um it's called University of Colorado's tournament. They used to host it up in Northern California at a place called Stevenson Ranch. And we played there. I think we played there three times when I was in school. And I think I might've won. I might've won it twice. I know for sure I won it one time and it might've been this year, but I think it was the 10 holes, like a par five, a little bit of a dog leg to the right. And there was a, you know, there's, kind of a creek sort of thing that runs down the left side, but there was something on the right side, if I remember right, that you had to kind of carry it too. So it was, it was a little bit of an awkward, you know, type of a shot. And I remember him saying, you know, he wasn't certain that I could carry it on the line that I was going to take. So he chimes in and he says, well, you just, he's like, you just can't miss it over there. You just, you, you can't miss it over there. <laughs> I remember right. like, full on double cross in it and hitting just an awful shot. And I turned around and I was like, would you just shut up? <laughs> I, just, I couldn't get it out of my head. Um, you know, what he was saying that I couldn't do. Um, but yeah, so that was probably the only time that we ever had any like real friction on the golf course. But I just remember turning around. Cause I mean, at the time I was playing some really good golf and I, you know, I didn't really want to hear it from anybody. And, you know, it certainly you know, led to a really, really bad tee shot. And albeit it was just in a practice round, but sure. I'm fairly, we probably had some dollars going on the line too. It's amongst ourselves. So it, I'm, I'm sure it meant something other than just, Hey, I get to reload another ball here and hit again. But uh, yeah, it was pretty funny, but that was, that was probably the one thing about the way he, the way he talked about it. Um, you know, he was just very adamant about where not to hit the ball sometimes as opposed to, you know, Hey, let's try to play it, you know, this way, which, you know, maybe is a better way to go about doing it, but you know, Hey, it was effective because you definitely would listen to when he, when he told it to you, because it would stick in your mind. Yeah. Well, (laughs) I, I believe you're the term you're talking about. You did win. And I, I pulled up the old uh, Kansas golf media guide and just kind of skimming through a couple things here. And yeah, uh, career uh, wins seven. That is a school record. And there's this guy in 2004, 2007, uh, Gary Woodland. He only has four. Do you ever remind him that he uh, he's he he just is second place on that list, or does that whole PGA Tour career, U.S. Open champion? I guess they, they you really can't go there, can you? Yeah, I mean, I think there was probably a time where I where I maybe would have reminded him of that. Um, but over the past couple of years, I think he's got plenty of ammunition <laughs> to fire back with. So, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't think I'm going to take it there anymore. It's just one of those things where I can say that, you know, that's one of the records that has stood the test of time. Uh, I'm fairly certain my scoring record, uh, still stands as well, which, you know, those are, those are cool things to have. I mean, there's been a lot of years that have passed and for nobody to, uh, 
you know, come through and break those, um, you know, because we've definitely had some good, some good players at Kansas, and oh, yeah. uh, you know, Gary obviously, you know, did well in his time at Kansas as a golfer, and he's gone on to do, you know, ex- extremely well, you know, on the PGA Tour, and you know, look forward to him, uh, you know, probably doing some more of that stuff there in the in the near future. He's kind of got all the pieces. He's got to get a PGA championship to match your uh, PGA professional championship. Yeah. And, uh, you know, honestly, the way those golf courses are set up, That's you know, he's, him, yeah. he, he's on the short list of guys that can definitely get that. He's, you know, he's put himself, you know, in the running the last couple of years. I mean, he's had, he's had good finishes the last two years in those events. So <clears throat> it's, uh, it's definitely something that he can, that he can pull off. Yeah. Um, yeah, I just remember uh, Coach Randall talking about uh, some of the irons that that Woodland would hit in college, where where it was just you know, one seventy eight, just hitting a smooth wedge, or just just ridiculous stuff like that. I I that that has to be just an interesting way to go through golf when you're hitting it that far. Yeah, you know, I've I remember being around Gary when that was kind of his thing. You right. know, I mean he <clears throat> he was able to do it that was kind of his calling card. So he, he really tried to do it, um, you know, and hit it long all the time and swing really hard. You know, the thing that has been able to separate him from, you know, other guys that, you know, maybe don't mature and maybe don't figure it out is, you know, he understands that, Hey, that's just a weapon. You know, I can, I can go at it, you know, at 80% effort and hit it longer than most guys. So I just kind of use that, sixth gear so to speak you know when it you know lends itself to it i mean i would say like you know if he tees off at the 17th and 18th hole at kapalua you know holes like that yeah you know where the conditions are such and the fairways are so big you know yeah he maybe will crack it up into sixth gear and you know try to hit it 400 yards or whatever. but you know i've i play practice rounds with him all the time at the pgas and uh, you know he doesn't embarrass me as much as he used to <laughs> <laughs> we you know he'll crank it up every once in a while and he'll pound one out there you know and you're like god that's just gross you know you know there's lots of holes where you know i mean i hit it you know relatively close to the same distance that he does but you know i know full well that if he wants it he can you know hit it 30 to 40 past me and just make me (laughs) eat crow in a heartbeat so He's, he's done, you know, really, really well with, you know, managing, you know, that part of his game and, and having it be like, it's legitimately a weapon for him now. It's not anything that's a hindrance to him. Yeah. Um, so you, you leave school, you're, uh, you graduate two-time All-American, you make the transition to play professionally, um, you know, played on buy.com, which, or, well, it's Corn Ferry now, but it's had probably 30 you know obviously the 37 names that tours had but uh, yep. buy.com nationwide played some events um you know it, it was brief and then you, you you said you moved back to kansas what uh, tell me a little bit about your your professional experience and and maybe what i mean did you not enjoy the experience was it just a just literally just a um you know you you weren't able to keep a card maybe talk about a little bit about your experiences coming out of college and then jumping onto the professional tour i was fortunate enough um you know to make it through the to the finals of qualifying school my first try doing it yeah. um 
which you know i mean i it's it, i don't know if it was a blessing or if it was a bad thing what you know whatever it was is what it was it was a really awesome experience i you know i was coming off of being an all-american twice i was winning tournaments at the college level so obviously you know for all intents and purposes my golf game was ready to go to the next level and play at that level my maturity maybe not and then i guess the other part was um you know you get out there and next thing you know you're playing against guys that you've been watching on television you know you're playing against guys that you've known about for a long long time and you start watching the way they go about doing things and you start going wow like he's way his swing is way better than mine and he does this that you know so i mean there was a certain amount of you know all of a sudden i became you know am i really good enough is my game really where it needs to be um you know so i think i i probably didn't trust myself enough you know that first year when i was out there playing and because of that i was probably trying to change things in my golf game which obviously if you look at the scores that i was shooting and the record that i had the previous years in college like there was really no reason for me to to be doing that stuff but for whatever reason you just get out there and you see these guys who have been professional you know for 10 15 20 years and they're you know, doing it a certain way and they make it look so easy and whatever. And I was just like, well, I don't think I'm there. And so I started trying to, you know, kind of tinker it around. And I honestly, I, it's another conversation that I don't know why I remember it, but I guess maybe looking back on it, I probably do know why I remember, but I was in Virginia beach playing the tournament and we were out, you know, hanging out probably this probably like a Monday or a Tuesday night. And we were out having some drinks at the bar and, you know, I was hanging out with Jerry Foltz who was working at the golf channel now, like he, or then like he is now. Yeah. And we were talking about, you know, my, my game. And I just was, you know, he's asking me how things are going and how, you know, and it's still pretty early in the year at that point. <clears throat> and I was, you know, and I kind of had started to rattle off, you know, these things that I felt like I needed to get better at. And he looked at me and he was like, what are you talking about? He's like, why do you think you need to change all these things in your golf game? (laughs) I was like, I was like, I don't know. I just don't feel like I'm doing it good enough. Um, You know, but, you know, we talked for, you know, whatever. It's not like it went on for hours and hours, but we talked. But I still remember him looking at me and kind of laughing at me as I was telling him this stuff. And he's just like, why do you feel like you need to change? So, you know, whatever, all, you know, I went through and had you know, fantastic year experiences that I, you know, obviously had, had only dreamed of doing and um, got to see the country, you know, and back then the schedule was nice enough that you could actually drive in a car and do it. You know, you didn't have to hop on an airplane all the time. So I got to drive all across the United States from coast to coast, um, you know, which was really fun. Got to see and do a lot of things. Um, but it, unfortunately my golf game, you know, just, it just really wasn't there. And I had a couple of decent tournaments and for the most part, it was, you know, disappointing on the golf course, but it was a great learning experience. And then, you know, so I went back to Q school, um, made it through the first stage of qualifying and then went to the second stage. And of course I missed by one shot. So one shot from getting to the finals, which at the time, if you got to finals, basically would have meant that you would have been able to play a fairly full schedule again on that on that tour, even as a conditional member, because the status 
you know, at that time was, you know, it was a lot different than it is now. If you're a conditional member, you are still going to get into a lot of events. Right. Um, now it's completely <laughs> different. I mean, now on the court so, fairy now, tour Q school, I mean, the only people that get full status are the two that win Q school. Yeah. And if you don't finish in the top 40, like you're probably not really guaranteed to get any starts. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's, yeah, it's, it's changed a lot. Um, yeah, so that was, you know, back then for me, that was really disappointing, um, to go through that and, you know, feel like I kind of squandered a really, really good opportunity, but at the same time, Hey, I mean, you do, you live and you learn, you just, you got to keep pushing forward. So, Obviously I wasn't done playing. I just, I found a, you know, a different route to go. So I started playing the mini tours, um, went down to Florida the next year and lived in, uh, you know, the Palm beach area, yeah. uh, Palms and Chris Thompson and myself were down there. We played the golden bear tour, yeah. uh, you know, which at the time was, it was great. You know, the competition was great. The tour was great. Um, you know, everything about it was nice. Uh, being in the heat of Florida during the summertime wasn't necessarily awesome, but they were smart enough to play early in the day every day. So you're pretty much done by, you know, one, two o'clock and you kind of get out of the heat. Uh, so we did that. And then again, went back to Q school the next year. And I think I made it to the second stage of the Q school again. And I either missed by one or I missed by two going to the finals. <laughs> so you know, it was another heartbreak. Um, and then after that is when my now wife, then girlfriend had gotten the opportunity to be the merchandise buyer for shadow Glen country club in Olathe. Okay. <clears throat> so that's when we moved back. So her and I, you know, we had been dating for two years, I guess at the time. And, uh, <clears throat> I was like, okay, well, if you're going to, you know, get this job and, you know, be 20 minutes outside of Lawrence. I'm like, why don't we move to Lawrence and get a place in Lawrence? And, you know, I mean, I'm, I can do what I'm doing from anywhere. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> so we moved back to Lawrence and that kind of, that's what got us back there. And then from then on, I didn't, I didn't ever go back and play the golden bear tour again. I'm not sure if it's cause it went away or if I just decided I was going to do something a little bit different, but I started playing on, you know, other mini tours. So, played a ton of years on the Adams professional golf tour, which yeah. was called the Titan tour at one time. Yeah. Um, you know, just a, just a bunch of those events. I would go up to play, you know, a few events on the Dakotas tour from time to time. Um, you know, so I just, I basically just kind of became that mini tour nomad where I would, you know, in the winter I would go play in Phoenix a couple times and then, you know, come back and hang out. And then I'd go, start playing down south when the you know when the tight lies tour and the adams tour got going all with the intention of you know getting ready to go play q school every year um you know so <clears throat> i did it all the way until 2010 and in 2010 you know i <clears throat> we had started to have a family um and just was kind of at a point where you know, I just needed to, I just needed to do something a little bit different. I mean, I had, I had had a run there early where I kept missing the finals by like one shot. And then I had about a four year run where, you know, I don't even know that I made it to the second stage of Q school, you know, so things got really frustrating. Right. 
<clears throat> well, then in like 2008 or 2009, I actually won the first stage of the qualifying school. I was playing easily the best that I'd ever played at that point in time. I'd kind of gotten a few things figured out and, you know, a big part of professional golf that a lot of people maybe don't figure out right away is, you know, it's still just golf, you know, and yes, at the end of the day, like you're trying to win money and everything else. But if you think about it from the standpoint of winning money and how am I, if I'm going to make the cut, if I'm not going to make the cut, I mean, chances are you're not going That's to a recipe for disaster. When you know, the recipe for disaster, you know I mean? So like I, I distinctly remember, you know, always wondering what the cut was going to be. Well, and lo and behold, I would always be right around the cut number, you know? So it was never a situation where I played golf in a comfort zone. I was always nervous about, you know, the cut and the cut and the cut, because if you don't make cut, you don't make any money. Well, it took me a couple of years, but I finally figured it out where if you don't think about it at all, just think about going and winning the golf tournament, <laughs> you know, chances are now you're going to be on a different line. You know, how close to the lead are you as opposed to how close to the cut are you? So I, I started having some, you know, some pretty nice success and where I was playing, you know, really, really well. And I got to the point where I was like, Hey, if I can, you know, if I can get to where I want to get now, I feel like I'm ready to succeed. Um, you know, and I won the first stage of the qualifying school. It was either 2008 or 2009. I can't remember for sure. And I went to the second stage again and <clears throat> was playing fantastic golf. I think I was, I think I shot like 70, 66 the first two days and was tied. I think I was tied for the lead. Um, and on the third round, I just, I didn't really have my game, but I played decent enough to shoot even par and was still well within the number. Um, and at the time it was the top 20 in ties make it to the final stage and uh I remember going out the last day and I kind of the same thing I was you know I was certainly nervous and I didn't have my best game got off to kind of a rocky start but then rallied you know and played fairly well at the end of the day and shot, I'm pretty sure I shot even par again so I finished eight under par 72 holes and I was of course just as I had been many many times before right around the number to qualify to go to the finals <laughs> and sat there for i don't know i mean it was probably an hour or whatever and of course ended up finishing 21st where 20 20 in ties qualify so i finished 21st i mean i remember you know that night going back and looking at some of the stuff and you know what had happened and who finished ahead of me and what what they did to finish their rounds and stuff and i mean it I mean, it makes you want to cry even to this day thinking about what some of the guys did the last few holes to beat the score that I had shot. Right. Um, <laughs> so that was really, really hard to take. And, you know, that was kind of the first time that I really thought, you know, okay, maybe I need to do something different for a while. So I think I probably played one more full year after that, but all the while, while I was playing that year, I was kind of thinking, you know, what, is potentially my next step going to be um you know because it, it had gotten to a point where i felt like it was groundhog day i would play and i would feel as the year would go i'd be like man i'm playing good like my game is good i'm having good finishes i'm you know doing all the things that would lead you to believe you're going in the right direction well then you'd go to q school and you'd get knocked down it'd be like oh okay well now i have to call my sponsors see if I'm still going to be able to get money, see if I'm still going to be able to do this another year. I mean, so it's just like, uh, it was a cycle that basically 
I had had enough of it. I just was like, I feel like I'm succeeding, but I'm not like, I'm not moving forward. I'm going right back to square one when I don't get through the Q school. So that basically, you know, took its toll on me. And I just, you know, decided to, you know, go down a different road. I had always been very into instruction and how, you know, people learn how to play the game. My dad being a PGA member, um, kind of gave me some access again. I mean, going back to my dad and the access he gave me to start playing the game, I was able to talk to him and just kind of came up with a plan, um, to use, you know, his connections, um, my ability, his connections to kind of knock on a few doors to see what might be available to me if I moved back to Nebraska and got into the PGA of America, you know, as a teaching pro. And, uh, it, as it turned out, I ended up coming back and I worked for him at the club that I grew up. Oh, wow! So, I mean, I talked to a few other people, um, you know, and they were, they just weren't really sure. I mean, I basically cold called them and, you know, just was a, the position that they weren't necessarily looking for. So as it turned out, my dad was just like, Hey, let's just do this. Why don't you just come back, get into the program, start working towards getting your PGA certification and just come teach here. So that's what I did. I came back, we worked out a deal where, you know, I was getting paid X amount. I was charging X for lessons and I was able to go play in the section events and earn, you know, an extra money on the side. But it just, it gave me a chance to at least, change the route that I was going and get into the PGA of America. Um, yeah. So that was, yeah. that was pretty cool. Yeah. So, well, that's, that's a great, okay. So that's, that provides us with really your, your, your timetable of how you transition from playing professionally to teaching professionally. So just by listening to that story and, and also notes that I have, or just information or thoughts that I'd had previously to our conversation, wanted to ask you, so what was the hardest part of the transition? Because you go for spending basically, I mean, let's just call it 15 years, five years of, you know, maybe junior golf, then four years of college, and then, you know, 10 or so years of of playing professionally. You go from 15 years of my relationship with golf is all about my game, my success, what I'm doing. And then you go into okay, I need to spend time with, you know, uh, when people come up to me, they don't necessarily really care about my game. It's all about their game and how I can help them with their, uh, their, their mm. enjoyment with golf. How was that transition for you? Um, well, I will say the fact that I went back to the club that I had grown up at, um, and where my dad had been the head pro director of golf for, for a lot of years, that certainly helped things because I went to a place of comfort. I went to a place where I knew people, um, if I was going to some place that it was just me and I didn't have a name, I didn't have any recognition. I didn't know any of the people. It probably would have been a little more difficult. Um, but you know, the familiarity with the surroundings and the familiarity with the people, um, certainly helped, but it was, you know, in a way it was, it was a little bit of humble pie. Um, you know, definitely trying to, you know, transition a little bit away from, you know, the selfish side of, you know, being a golf pro trying to do everything for me, me, me as to now I'm, you know, I got to prioritize this a little differently. And, you know, that has to kind of be secondary, um, you know, which in the end has turned out to be 
probably the best thing for me. Um, yeah. but at the time it was, it was definitely, it was difficult, but you know, it was, it just, it was time to do something different. So as tough as it was, it was just something that I, that I had to do. So, um, you know, I'm looking at, you know, obviously there's so many, you know, you mentioned the mini tours, the APT tour and the golden bear, and you know, the, a lot of those tours still exist. There's probably other uh, avenues that are available for, you know, uh, people that are trying to uh, make it on the PGA tour. Um, you gotta be laser focused to succeed out there, but can you talk about your process or maybe advice that, that you can give to some of these guys that are going to kind of follow the same path you did play professionally. And then they're, then they're going to become a teaching pro. Maybe what's one thing you wish you did differently or one thing that you wish you avoided. I mean, I don't know that there's um, be, due to the, you know, kind of some of the rules that would govern you as a PGA of America apprentice. I don't know that there's really anything. If you're, still trying to play i don't know that there's really you can do to you know kind of lay that groundwork um you know i I will say that the pga of america has the pga management program and colleges now and there's a lot more of those than there were when i was you know a student i mean if that was available to me at the university of kansas or let's just say if there was more universities that had that right i maybe would have looked to do that Um, you know, cause you know, let's be honest. I mean, I knew that no matter what, whatever my life was going to entail, golf was going to be part of it, whether it was playing on the tour or at some point in time, ending up, you know, kind of following in my dad's footsteps. I knew for a long, long time that that's where I was going to be. Um, so a, a UNO or a UNL, you know, PGM program or whatever it may have been certainly would have interested me because it would have gotten me that PGA membership, you know, as my college degree. Um, you know, so if, if, if that's something that you kind of know, you know, going into college, maybe look for, you know, attending a school that has, you know, that program, cause man, you graduate and you're a PGA member. I mean, that's, that's a good thing. Yeah. Um, aside from that, I mean, probably the only thing that I regret, you know, looking back on it and there was, there's other factors that kind of happened and little things along the way too. But once I became an apprentice, I mean, I rushed through the first part of it you know, in like a month and a half, because <clears throat> there was a tournament in Vegas that I wanted to be eligible to go play in when I was making my transition from Lawrence Omaha. Right. <laughs> so I busted my butt through the very first part of, you know, the apprentice thing, just getting qualified to be in the program. And then once you get into the program, there's level one, level two, and level three. And once you're done with level three, you, you know, you're through the whole thing. Well, they give you a two-year window you know, to complete each level. And if you put your mind to it and if you, you know, knuckle down and do it, I mean, I honestly think you can do each level in six months. You can, if you, if you go through it, I mean, you can, you know, and, and that's saying that you can still work and do your other stuff on the side too. I mean, if you, if you just plan for it and if you buckle down, I mean, I think you can complete it all, you know, in that amount of time. So, I mean, that would mean you could, go through the whole program and in 18 months maybe two years you know tops well of course it took me six you know procrastination is kind of one of those things that you know it's just it's easy to do and you get you you get going on other things and you know i'm starting i'm trying to build a clientele i'm trying to learn how to become a better teacher i'm trying to still play in some you know all the section events and stuff like that well the 
for somebody like myself, who's competitive, being an apprentice only offers you so many chances to play. Once you become a class A member of the PGA, all of a sudden the doors open to you way more on the competitive side. And now you can go play in the national club professional championship, um, you know, which I've played in three of them now and I've finished ninth. I won and I finished eighth. So all three of those finishes have got me into PGA championships. Right. As a winner of that tournament, I got to play in six PGA tour events this last year. So, I mean, getting to that level, um, you know, where you are a full class A member of the PGA, that that's a huge, huge deal. So, I mean, if I had to do it all over again, you know, taking six years, I would at least try to knock two years off of that and get it done a couple of years sooner. I mean, that's just one of those things that, yeah. you know, that, Always, that was always the thing that my dad and I talked about when I was making the transition because, you know, it was like, I'm never going to lose competitive golf because I'm going to be able to play in the section events. There's still like a Nebraska Open, you know, you could, if you wanted to go play in a, you know, Dakota Tour event, you could still go do that if you wanted to. Um, but the PNC and all the other, you know, the winter championships that you can go down to Florida and play in and those kinds of things as a, as a full member of the PGA, that was kind of the only the carrot at the end of the stick that I was trying to get to. And, you know, I just, I made it take too long. You know, I, if I could have done it two years sooner, that would have been a nice thing. I'm thinking to myself, you got this guy that's that, that plays competitively on, on that, that's, you know, knocking on the door at the final stage of Q school when you're on the range, you're surrounded by some of the best players in the world. And then your next career is you're probably trying to help a 25 handicapper <laughs> get a nine iron airborne. I yeah. Mean, I mean, do you remember maybe the first time you were on the range giving a lesson, thinking to yourself, what, what am I, what am I doing? I don't know how I've never had to tell anyone how to get a wedge in the air. How do I, how do I do this? You know, I don't know that I remember any specifics, but I certainly, you know, I remembered, you know, lots of different times where I would have to go through and, you know, try to explain something that I could easily do, but explaining it, you know, becomes different. So that's one of the things that I've gotten obviously a lot better at over the years is, you know, communicating how things are done. Um, but, you know, the funniest thing about all of that is some of that discovery, um, you know, as a teacher is what has helped me to become, you know, a better player now than I ever was when I was playing all the time, because I've had to look at it, you know, a different way. And I've had to kind of dive into like, okay, well, how do you actually do this as opposed to just going and doing it? So I've, I've learned a lot about, you know, myself and how I did things, you know, I mean, I would say the biggest one would always be a, a bunker shot, you know, like guys would always ask me, well, how far do you hit it? Where do you put it in your stance and whatever? And I'm like, God, I don't even know. Right. Like, I just, I just look at the ball. I dig my feet in and I go, I just look at the hole. I, you know, and so like people would ask me, I'm like, man, I think it's a really easy shot. But now that you ask me like how to do it, like, I'm not sure I know exactly how I do it. I just do it. <laughs> so yeah, that's, that's definitely been, you know, a pretty eye opening experience and, and definitely something that I can look back and say that helped me immensely to become a better player than I am or than I was then. Interesting. <clears throat> so did you, and, and I, I guess 
you're talking about all these section events and state opens and, and all these. <laughs> did you know about all the section events and competitive opportunities that a class A had? And, and I'm not asking here. And I guess I also want to know, like, I'm not, and I'm not asking for personally, I, I don't need to see a 1099 or anything, but I mean, mm -hmm. do you get a sense of how much PGA class A's use section events to supplement their income? Is it a, hey, this is part of my job, this is how I make money? Or is mm -hmm. it like, that's my day job, I'm at the club, and a handful of times a year, I get to go play competitively, and if I bring home a couple bucks, hey, cool, I can do whatever with that that's just you know yep. so it, can you talk about you know, you know i don't i don't want to get too personal about how you look at it but if you could just share i'm just curious about that i think other people would be too so i knew about all the pro-ams and all the section events and you know i i had looked to see you know how much money some guys were able to make you know doing it so obviously comparing my game to their games i was able to kind of decipher like hey i can I can still make a decent amount of money just kind of on the side of, you know, and then have teaching. So I've got more than one source of income. So yeah. for myself, I will definitely say that I, you know, and, and this is probably at some point going to change, but my game has been at a level and it continues to be at a level where it's really good. So I can approach all of these competitive things in a way that it's, it is, it's a supplement to my income. I can count on making, you know, a, certain amount of money a year you know in playing there will be a time as i get older that you know some of that probably will start to dwindle a little bit because you know father time wins all the time uh, so but personally and i do know other players that are kind of in my same boat where that is definitely the way we look at it and then there's also you know a huge huge percentage of guys that you know they're their day job is their job. Like that is priority number one, where I'm kind of juggling two things equally. You know, there's yeah. other guys that, you know, they've got their job at the club and that's priority number one. But then they also know that, Hey, you know, we can kind of go have some fun and we can kick some things around and, uh, you know, do, you know, some events and maybe make a little extra money here and there, which will help pay for a vacation or, or whatever. Exactly. It's, it's kind of a secondary thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I still look at it from the standpoint of, Hey, you know I mean? If I can juggle the two things equally right now, I can have not one source of income, but two sources of income. And that's, you know, that's a yeah. pretty cool. Now you mentioned earlier, uh, your success at the, at the PNC, the professional national championship, uh, you know, three top tens got you into, um, you know, three PGA championships. Um, I know you're yep. going to be playing in the PGA championship next year as well at, uh, oh gosh, is it Beth page? I can't well, remember. Hopefully I still have, to, I st actually still have to qualify for it. Oh, so we'll okay. play. Yeah. So we'll play the PNC in April, um, about two weeks ahead of the PGA championship. So we'll play at Barton Creek down in Texas. Top 20 will qualify for the PGA championship. And, uh, uh, San Francisco at Harding Park. So okay. hopefully, uh, you know, obviously my my goals are to be ready to play in April. And you know, we had a uh, <clears throat> uh, some of ten of us had a chance to be on the PGA Cup team uh, two months ago, three months ago. Oh yeah, uh, we'll I, I have to ask you about here. Bob Soward's shot. So so yeah, so we got you know, so that was a nice little preview. I mean, I had been to Barton Creek before, but it had been 
20 years. Um, so it was really cool to go back there and play the golf course and especially to do it under, you know, highly competitive, you know, situation, you know, so it's, you know, I, obviously I think the 10 of us that played there and had really good experience, you know, we'll go into the PNC, you know, liking our chances to, you know, have a good week and qualify for the PGA championship. Will all of us do it? Probably not, but I would say there's a good chance that some of us are going to do it. Oh yeah. Well, when you when you did win the the PNC in 2018, uh, you know obviously it got you into the PGA Championship, where you made the cut. And uh, I mean, you you made the cut in in a tournament that had the likes of Kisner, Leishman, and some guy named Tiger, where they missed the cut. But um, I, I want to ask you, it gets you, it got you six starts on the PGA Tour in 2019. Yep. And, you know, I, I had Mike Small uh, as a guest on the podcast in the past. You know, he's a previous champion. And, you know, we spoke a lot about, uh, you know, his, his Illinois, uh, uh, Illini golf team. Yep. And we didn't dig into this as much. But I don't know if the casual golf fan really understands how this whole thing works where you get six PGA Tour starts. So can you talk a little bit about do you choose the tournaments? Do Are they chosen for you in some regard? I mean, obviously, you're not getting into, you know, the invitationals like Memorial and, and the Arnold Palmer and the Masters, and I get that. But, you know, you played uh, these six events and the PGA Championship. Can you talk a little bit about how that happens? You know, that's one of the things about, you know, the P- the PNC that, you know, is really, really cool. Um, you know, it's the biggest field of golfers that you're probably ever going to see, 312 guys playing. Um, you know, and the perk at the end of it is, you know, a pretty nice check, the honor of being the PGA professional champion. But then, yeah, you've got that extra thing out there on the end where you get to play in six PGA tour events the following year. And that was, uh, you know, I had, I played with Michael Block who had won the tournament before the, the final day. And, you know, that was one of the things that, you know, kind of when we got done playing, he just said, Hey, you know, if you ever got any questions of how this stuff works, don't be afraid to call me, you know, yada, yada. And there was multiple guys that kind of told me the same thing. Like, Hey, don't be, don't be afraid to reach out. But yeah, so you kind of go into it and you're not really sure exactly how it goes. Well, eventually you start getting some communications from the tour and stuff. Um, Can you get six starts? Three of those starts have to be in tournaments that are opposite field events so when they okay. play like match play championship or opposite the british open or or whatever so you get those opposite field tournaments so three of the six are are to be played in those tournaments and if you wanted to play all opposite field events you could um but just three of them for sure have to be and then they give you a fairly sizable list of what i guess are called you know open events outside of that so you know, there's a lot of tournaments that are open events um, and you can pick and choose from those. And I just kind of chose based on, uh, you know, I, I picked the opposite field events that I thought would be, you know, the best tournaments and the, you know, kind of the ones that fit into my schedule um, as best as I could. And then outside of that, I kind of looked at the other ones as far as golf course, right. the type the type of conditions that you'd be playing, you know, grass wise, Bermuda, you know, I'm not a a huge, huge fan of Bermuda grass. So I tried to avoid that as much as I could. Um, you know, so that was kind of the way that I did it, but also being able to go play like at the John Deere, which is, you know, close to home. And actually I spent two years of my life, you know, living in the quad cities. So that was probably the first 
tournament that I really remember being a part of as a kid going and watching, you know, it wasn't at the same golf course, but it was, you know, the same tournament just a long time ago. Um, so being able to go play in that was really cool. Um, but yeah, that's, that's just kind of the way I did it. But you know, when you get a chance to, you know, go from, you know, the day to day, you know, position that I'm at now where I'm teaching and still playing and all that. And then next thing, you know, basically I got to be a tour player last year. I mean, I got to be an absolutely just, I mean, mentally it had just been crazy. I I can't even imagine that where you're just like, all right, I'm just going to go moonlight over here in the PGA tour. Yeah. You know, and when you think about, you know, I mean, I got to play in seven events since I played the PGA championship as well. And then, and really I got to play in eight because I played in the web dot or the corn fairy event here in Omaha as well. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, if you think about that, I mean, that's, that's almost as many tournaments as Tiger was. Man, I, I, they're playing 15, 18 events. I mean, I got to play almost as many events as they did. I knew we'd get to a point in this interview where you would compare yourself to Tiger Woods. <laughs> I just knew it. I knew it. Um, but yeah, that's, that's awesome how you, you just found yourself now, which, uh, you know, you made the cut down at the, uh, the Punta Cana in the, in, uh, I believe that's the Dominican, right? Is that the yep, Dominican Republic? Yep. Yeah. And then made the cut, the PGA, um, you know, missed mm-hmm. the other cuts at like Valspar and, and rock and mortgage and all that stuff. But yep. like what we could talk probably for, for hours about the differences that you saw between, you know, last year compared to, you know, 2000, 2001 when you're playing mm-hmm. by.com, but it, was there one takeaway that you had that was like, wow, I, I was surprised at this or boy, I, I'm glad I'm going back to, to Omaha because this isn't for me. Or, I mean, I guess I'm just like, what, what were your takeaways um, no, after spending um, a year on tour? Well, it's everything you'd ever expect it to be. Let's put it that way. I mean, okay. the way you're, tre- the way you're treated and the way you're taken care of, um, you know, it's, it's fantastic. And, you know, as, as somebody who, you know, is a a club professional, doesn't do it, you know, on a day-to-day basis, you know, hasn't earned your way out there the way some of those other guys have, you know, you'd look at it and you're like, well, I wonder how I'm going to be accepted out here. I was just going to ask you that. Like, were they looking at like, who the hell is this guy? Yeah. So there, you know, there's a certain amount of that. I mean, I'm fortunate enough to, you know, to go way back with a lot of these guys and I played college golf, junior golf, and, you know, even professional golf with a lot of the guys that are out there playing now. So, I mean, I, I know people and I'm familiar, you know, with a lot of those guys as it is, um, which certainly helps, but I tell you the, the one thing that, you know, I definitely will take away is I don't know that I was around anybody out there that wasn't really cool. I mean, they, they were awesome to be around. They didn't, you know, look down on me at all. And, you know, I never, they weren't ever like, well, what are you doing out here? You know, it was, right. it was, the guys were great. I mean, it, it was, it was really fun to, you know, to get to be a part of that world for a while. Um, you know, the equipment manufacturers and the stuff that you get to do and the people you get to meet. I mean, it's, yeah, it's fantastic. And every single one of those guys wanted me to use their stuff just as much as they wanted you know, another guy on tour to use it, you know, I mean, I had multiple, you know, shaft company get plate people and stuff like that, where they were inquisitive as to what I was using. And, 
you know, putter guys that would want me to try their stuff out. Cause you know, they wanted, you know, I mean, it, they treated me just like I was, you know, any PGA tour member. And that was really, really cool. Um, it's funny you mentioned that cause I'm thinking to myself, you know, imagine if you're 20 dealing with all that distraction. I mean, you're 40, <laughs> you're 40, 41. And you, you know that, that you're, you know, this is a special treat in 2019 where it's not, you, you know, your, your performance in these events is not dictated on your, your career. Cause you have your, your career at, in, in Nebraska. And I'm just thinking to myself, all these kids that are coming up on tour and they're just all the equipment options and all this and all the attention, all the distractions. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I can't imagine what that's like. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's really fun. It's, it's cool to have, you know, all the options and the way the equipment is now. Um, you know, there's, there's something out there for everybody. There's no question about that. And there's probably 15 things that are exactly the same. They just are painted different and look yeah. a little bit different. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that it's, it's pretty easy to trust what you have because of the, you know, the track mans and the GC quads and all the different testing devices that you can, you know, put yourself on. I mean, so it makes, it makes the decisions a lot easier. You're not just hitting shots and trying to take a guess at it. I mean, everything has an answer at the end of the day. Um, so if you know what you're looking for, you can find it, which is, which is nice. And, you know, like I said, it's, it's like a kid in a candy store. If there's something that you think you need, they're certainly going to help you find it. Um, and they're more than willing to do it. So, you know, it's fantastic. It's uh, probably, and uh, it's probably a hard question for you to answer, or maybe it's not, but if in that entire experience in 2019, maybe who is one person or one practice round or one pairing that you, you can look back and say, man, I can't believe how lucky I am. I got to experience that. I wish, I hope I can get back and do that again. <clears throat> um, well, I mean, I, I got a couple of them that, it, and they both go back to just nostalgic stuff. I mean, Chris Thompson, who was a teammate of mine at Kansas, yeah, had qualified for the tour and was a rookie on tour last year. So, you know, for he and I, you know, we had beat our head against the wall for years and years and years together, you know, and we had <clears throat> kind of done the same thing. I just happened to stop beating my head against the wall and he <laughs> continued to do it. Well, it worked out for him and he was able to, you know, get a PGA tour card last year. And so while I was able to go play in events, he was a rookie on tour. So we got to share the experience together, which I mean, 20 years ago, we thought we'd be doing it and, you know, it just took us a lot longer to do it, but we got to, you know, we got to play a lot of practice rounds together and got to hang out and, you know, kind of be a part of it. Neither one of us you know, performed as well as we would have wanted to. Um, but we got to do it, you know, so that was, you know, those experiences were really cool, but, you know, probably the, the coolest was at the uh, PGA championship of Beth page, um, Tyler Hall, who is a club professional also who got the last spot in the tournament through the PNC and playoff. He, I think he went four holes of a playoff maybe at, um, in South Carolina to get the last spot in the PGA. And he is also a Kansas grad. Um, he kind of came into Kansas when I was leaving Kansas and was, he was leaving kind of as Gary was coming in. There was, there was a little bit of overlap all the way around, but it was three of us that were kind of, you know, we never really played 
fully together, but we were kind of right on the fringes of each other at Kansas. Right. And, uh, <clears throat> so we, we went out and the three of us played a practice round, um, at Beth page, which, you know, I don't know that there's ever been three Jayhawks in the major, in the same major championship at one time, but probably that in itself is a record. Um, and we got to experience it and play a practice round together. And, we had a great time. Um, the weather wasn't awesome, but it was just an awesome time to be out there and, you know, to, you know, to do it together and to, you know, to obviously pick Gary's brain and kind of go through the practice round process that, you know, that he goes through, and, you know, I've done it with him quite a few times, but it's, you're always going to learn something, um, you know, seeing where they think the pins are going to be and, you know, their knowledge of how the course gets set up and stuff like that. I mean, we, we got to learn a lot and I don't know that that'll, uh, you know, ever really be topped. Um, but you know, and I, and I will say, and again, going back to Gary and how, you know, genuine of a guy he is, I mean, we texted, you know, later on that night afterwards, and I don't think he says stuff like this just to say it, but he said, you know, that was honestly the best practice round I've ever had on the PGA tour. It was so much to be able to do that. Um, you know, so that's, that's pretty cool coming from a guy like that. And I mean, obviously I felt the same way. I'm like, here we are, you know, three guys that play golf at the University of Kansas and we're, you know, getting ready to tee off in a major championship in a couple of days and we got to play a practice round together. I mean, it was, it was really cool. That's awesome. Um, so I, I mean, I'm just, I really appreciate all this, this, this great insight, this great time that you've been providing us. And I know the listeners are going to love this episode. Um, I want to ask you, you know, before I let you go, I want to talk a little bit about what your plans are for 2020 but one of the cool things is, first of all, I love team format golf. I was at the Walker Cup last year, Ryder Cup. You know, we just wrapped up this, this amazing comeback at the President's Cup. But the PGA Cup is uh, something that maybe listeners aren't fully aware of. And it's obviously team format, you know, professional, you know, teaching professionals uh, for PGA of America. Again, so, you know, golf professionals uh, represented uh, by GB and, or the GB&I golf professionals. So this was, as you mentioned, is at Barton Creek in, in Austin. Incredible comeback that the U.S. team had. This is your first time playing the PGA Cup, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, and, you know, honestly, again, you know, you're talking about a sport which typically is a pretty selfish thing. You know, you do things for yourself and you do things trying to beat everybody else. Sure. Um, you don't do it in a team format very often, but um, having the chance to do it, um, you know, and honestly, I, I shouldn't even forget to say this but you know that's if i do regret anything in my life as far as a golfer the one thing that i maybe do regret is my senior year of college i was chosen to play on the palmer cup team which coach randall was the captain of um and i declined to do it because i was really excited to become a professional golfer and didn't and didn't want to wait three months to do it so um you know as a 21 year old, you don't really think a whole lot of a decision like that. I mean, it wasn't that difficult of a decision for me to make, but you know, 20 years down the road, now I look at it and I'm like, God, what an idiot, you know, how cool of an experience that have been. And to do it with my college coach as the captain, you know, would have made it even cooler. But you know, that is, that being aside, I hadn't ever got to play in any event, you know, quite like this. So I was really excited going in. Obviously I know the guys that were on the team. Um, when you get there though, I mean, it, blows out your expectations i mean everything about it was bigger better and cooler than you could even dream of it being well and of course we go down there and we play and you know i mean i i think we all played you know pretty good golf the gb and i team was 
fantastic. I mean, I think they would probably say it's the best team that they've ever had. Um, and I feel like we put the best team that we could have, you know, out there ourselves. Um, but you know, we were kind of hanging in there the first day we, you know, won some matches and it was pretty tight. And then the second day rolls around and they just absolutely drummed us. And then, I mean, it was like a bloodbath out there and all of a sudden, you know, you're kind of sitting there going, well, I'm not sure there's any way we can win this thing. Well, of course we have a talk about it in the team room and everybody kind of says their piece. And, you know, I think the consensus was that, you know, none of us played poorly. We just got beat by guys that played better that day. So, I mean, that being said, we all knew that if we, you know, put our heads down, went out there with a goal in mind to win our matches that, you know, it it wasn't over. And the way the final day, you know, wrapped up was just, unbelievable i mean it it's literally the momentum of the whole thing you could kind of see it changing if you watch the boards as you were going around the course but i mean there was a lot of red up there um but the whole thing i mean i would say there was a 10 to 15 minute stretch that the whole thing just totally turned over and all of a sudden it was like we probably aren't going to win to like we are gonna win and it was the fastest turnaround and the most emotional thing i mean it was just it was crazy and it all started off when bob sowards you know holes out this unbelievable chip on the 18th hole for eagle were you there were you were you on still on the course or did you see i was i was still playing so i mean i got to see the replay of it and whatnot but and that was the thing that was so nuts i mean i knew that he was in a tight match i knew that ben kern who was playing right behind him was in a tight match but they were both looking like they were gonna if not win they were gonna at least have and get again get something out of the deal which was very important as well um and then i think there was maybe one or two matches kind of in between us um And But as it turned out, I mean, Bob makes his chip shot. He wins. And I think 30 to 45 seconds after that, Ben Kern made a putt on the 17th hole to win his match. And then I think I won my match um, because I won five and four. So I got done quite early. Um, But I think literally within five minutes, all three of us had won our matches and the guy right behind me, Ben Cook, was like one hole away from winning his match. So, I mean, it, just, it was just crazy how fast it all turned around. And it, it's something that you can't really <laughs> describe. But, you know, you got guys who have headsets on and they're giving you updates and stuff like that. So it was, yeah, it was just, it was remarkable. And then, you know, the fact that we were in Austin, Texas, where Ben Crenshaw is from, yeah. he he had come to talk to us Um you know, at a team dinner the first night we were there. And then you start going back to Brookline in 1999 and the comeback that the Ryder Cup team had. I mean, the deficit was the same. Yeah. The score on the scoreboard was the exact same. The only difference was they played 12 matches. We only have 10. So our margin for error was really small. Um, but we were able to we were able to do it. And I mean, they, you know, just the ironic part of it and how it all played out was almost spooky in a way but yeah it was it was really really fun and you know something that i definitely uh have pinned on the calendar to try to make that team again in two years because it was one of the coolest experiences i've ever had in golf well you're talking about uh, that's that's incredible yeah, i remember seeing that shot by sours and i was like you got to be kidding me i mean it was just absolutely incredible um you're set up for a great 2020 you mentioned that you got the pnc coming up you're gonna try and qualify for that uh 
um, for the the PGA Championship. Gosh, I, I hope we could do this again soon. Um, and uh, thanks so much for your time today. Uh, this is fantastic uh, information and just great hearing your story. And um, thanks for stopping by the back of the range. You bet. Thank you very much for having me. And there you have it. Special thanks to Ryan Vermeer for joining us this week at the back of the range. All the best to him in 2020. I know he's looking for a berth in that PGA Championship. I'm sure there's got to be a practice round in store for him with Gary Woodland should he get there. So all the best to him. Don't forget, follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. We are on social media. If you want to listen to any of the previous episodes, go to thebackoftherange.com. Leave a review in Apple Podcast. We'll see you again next week for another episode here at the Back of the Range.